Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray in the hot seat as we take a wander across to the other side of the planet to talk about something that affects the game in every jurisdiction. If you've listened to the show before, you'll know that one of the recurring themes we touch on is public golf and its place not only in communities, but indeed society itself. Well, a couple of weeks ago, there was a really interesting get-together in America to talk about many of the issues we've raised on this very program, as well as plenty that we haven't. Now, given the global reach of the juggernaut that is the Talking Golf Network, we, of course, had a correspondent attend, digitally it must be said, and Dave Hill, slash one bearded golfer, host of the excellent Blind Shots podcast, will be along in just a moment to give us a rundown of some of the topics of interest at the National Links Trust Symposium on Public Golf. Before we do that, though, let me bring in the other half of the us I keep referring to, Adrian Logue. Logue, this is right in our wheelhouse. I'm hopeful and encouraged simply by the existence of this get-together. Important and tells us we're a step further along the road to maybe getting something done rather than just talking. Indeed. Um, well, no doubt it might have been a bit mm-hmm. of a talk fest, but we'll we'll find out. And, uh, you know, maybe there could be some genuine As a podcast action. co-host, you need to be yeah. a little bit careful about talking down the talk fest because that's kind of all that we do. That's what we do. Well. That's exactly right. <laughs> what about, so I put the Logue in dialogue. don't know. Dial, yeah, dialogue. Oh, wow. Prologue, epilogue. <laughs> oh, wow, indeed. That was, that was yours. <laughs> you came up with that. Uh, yeah, indeed. Enough about us. Let's bring in the man of the moment. Dave Hill, I think we find you on some sort of golf holiday with the family. Is that right? How did you manage that? Uh, and can you give us the secret so the rest of us can give it a try? I uh, have a wife that loves the beach, maybe as much as she loves you. Find a beach that has good golf courses near it. Uh-huh. And voila. And grab a few. When you have a few days off, go. Now, hang on. But that's all well and good. But didn't you just come back from Pinehurst from a boys trip? I did, actually. This is (laughs) on the heels of a guy's getaway golf trip. That's right. Indeed. Forget all of that. Let's get to uh, the work. Now, first things first, this National Links Trust, interesting sort of a group. Have you got a little bit of a thumbnail sketch you can give us of what that's about, the people who organized this event? Yes, the the National Links Trust. It was started by Mike McCartan, uh, Mike McCartan, and Will Smith. They're both uh, in the golf industry, both builders and shapers from the architectural side. Mm-hmm. Um, have a connection to DC. There were three public courses in Washington DC proper, and as through a through the chain of history, they'd all become owned by the National Park Service here, the United States. So they were federally owned oh, okay. in a city. That's interesting, um, isn't so it? really unique. Yeah, and they had all fallen into big disrepair, just neglected, kind of short-term gains over everything. But they these are eighty, ninety-year-old courses with some real architectural chops in their original iteration. So these guys started a nonprofit um, and networked and created a huge um, kind of public-private partnership. Following that model, were able to go in. They convinced the powers that be at the National Park Service of what kind of asset they really have. Um, it wasn't understood. You know, they treated it like a concession, hmm. like the guy hawking programs and hot dogs out at Yosemite National Park. That's the way it was treated within the park. Nobody did long-term investment. So they came in and said, look, we know this can work. These, these are real community assets. There was some, uh, some real history on the cultural side. I mean, these were the only places that black Americans could play golf kind of in the D.C. area. You know, all the country clubs were verboten, you know, of, of people mm-hmm. of color. Um, so there's this long history there of, you know, just being integ- integral parts of the community. And 
the first course, East Potomac, which is on an island in the middle mm, of the I've Potomac River. It's a really interesting place, yeah. Yeah. Originally had a reversible routing. Wow. So that, you know, from an architectural for the golf nerd, there's some mm. real interest there. But it had been degraded over time. Well, Mike and Will and their partners went in. Uh, after kind of educating the masses, they put a bid in through the National Links Trust. Uh, they went and got funding and were able to bid to win the contract to operate uh, the three courses. Oh, East not Potomac, just to, think, to actually operate them, uh, take over the management of them. That what they're, I guess I think what the pitch was is that in order to invest in them properly, they needed to be able to run them as well, mm -hmm. to do the investment strategically, make it a long-term, not a five-year concessionaire contract where there's no incentive to mm -hmm. invest the money, but actually do it over time. Uh, and it's three courses, Rock Creek Park, uh, the golf course there, Langston, and they're starting at East Potomac. So uh, they won the bid. It, it is a, it's the newest iteration of that public-private partnership. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's all done with the permission of the, the National Links Trust. but So they've put this foundation together. That's what National Links Trust is. And then um, they've been operating, I think this is year one or year zero for operating the actual golf courses. Oh, fantastic. I mean, 20, 2020 and 2021. 20, <laughs> yeah, it, indeed. It touches on something like I want to bring this up with you. There's lots of things golf needs to fix about itself and do better. On the other side, in terms of public golf, Dave's touched on something there that is absolutely true. I think of every public golf facility you think of almost, except for Moore Park is one I think isn't the case. No knowledge or understanding of the game or the business of golf on the part of the council or the government arm that owns it. And this is why we see so many of these courses not producing what they can. So really interesting that he should say that this is what happens, isn't it? You've got people who don't know anything, but they think that the golf course and the cricket field are the same thing. They're just grass needs to be mowed. Yeah, or well, the the golf course and the concession, the hot dog concession no, stand, analogy, or something like that, isn't it? Uh, and, and it's got me thinking about combining golf courses and hot dog concession very, stands. I think very much that'd, that'd be a win win. <laughs> yeah, would be a win win. I think. Uh, but yeah, no, that's that's true. Councils uh, generally don't know the asset that mm, they've got, the and potential. The, yeah, the yes, potential yeah. revenue earning of that asset, as opposed to just something that's a cost that you've got to send people out to mow every now and that's then. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's an interesting thing, and it takes it takes the industry to educate to pitch it. So this yeah. is this is what I was. They're going not going to come to that realization on their own. No, that's right, and that wouldn't be an easy sell, Dave. I'm sure every council and um, government arm that owns a, a public golf facility has had various people over time pitch them. Let us manage it, and it'll be fantastic for everyone. Most of those operators are in it for exactly as you say, the short term, and those. For understandable reasons, those deals tend to be a short-term deal. You know, the government can't be seen to just handing one company a 25-year free kick at the local golf course. So you can understand the thinking, but it just doesn't work, does it? That must have been some pitch that they put to convince the National Links Trust to let them come in and be that public-private partner. And more to the point, could that be possible, do you think, at a lower level of government, at that local level, or is it because it's the national the the national parks people? Did that make it easier being a federal body? Do you reckon for them? I think in this specific case, because it was Washington D.C. and that is our center of power. Mm -hmm. You know, that is our political center. So the people that Mike and Will recruited to be on their board were some of the heavy hitters, right. the people that had even tangential connections to golf. They were able to say, "Look," they were able to go to the the bureaucrats at the National Park Service and say, 
look, we're not some fly-by-night operation. We've mm-hmm. got CEOs, lobbyists. You know, we've got the the head of the PGA, the head of the USGA. We've got all these people, these you know titans of industry. Yeah. Um, and if you look at on their website, you look at their team and their board. I'm not really being hyperbolic. They they've got some real heavy hitters through their connections in golf. We to know go. golf. We know business. We know politics. <laughs> We've right. got the tools. We got the skills. Further to but and so that was their that was the private part of their public private partnership that got them in the door and um, through I don't know I don't know if it was I've talked to I've had Mr. Mike McCartan on my podcast and it wasn't exactly a bunch of Georgetown cocktail parties but it was not an immediate like one time meeting it was a, a cultivation process of the powers that be trying to scale that out to I think in large metro areas. And this is something I talked about, we can discuss in the, about the panels. I think that is scalable. But to smaller areas, um, perhaps my hometown of about you know half a million people that owns five public golf courses for you know five to maybe 650,000 people of the scale, you know, you've got to have a, a pretty big piece at the top of that pyramid of the, on the private side, mm-hmm. I think, to really get the attention of the local local government. Yeah. And, of course, the motors driving it have to be right as well. Many are going to go into this, and it's not going to be about – it's not an altruistic motive like these guys have got for a lot of – and it's, it's a reality. People need money to live. You've got to have a successful, mm-hmm. profitable kind of business model. So you can see how it can get tricky. Let's come to the symposium itself. Fabulous idea. But immediately, probably because of my background as a daily hack newspaper person, I'm skeptical straight away of any kind of talk fest. Uh, I remember you said to me, oh, you can get a digital pass to go on. I had other things I couldn't do any, but you offered to go and attend so that you could come and give us this report. Was it just a talk fest or was there something of value there? I was skeptical that it was going to be a talk fest as well. Um, but the skeptical that it was going to be a talk fest as well. Um, but the panel, Andy Johnson from fried egg was, was MC and was hosting this panel of, of Tom Doak, Bo Welling and Jay Blasey. Um, so that piqued my interest a little bit. Three heavy hitters the first in that field. Yeah. <laughs> or four. Right. Andy. I mean, uh, I guess if only um, there was a sustainability panel as well. <laughs> and a growth the, game panel. There was, Adrian. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, there was, there was. An inclusion and diversity. And what it was, it, but, but surely they didn't have a women in golf panel. <laughs> They, they went to the. They did. They oh. tried to check all the boxes. The wow! Corporate HR okay, said sounds really have good. To have and a community impact panel like that would be <laughs> surely they didn't yeah. get together the people for a community yeah, impact. They panel. did. And, they did. And so yes, that oh. that got my cynicism up as well. Some of it well placed, but some as some of it as it turns out not so well placed. Um, they asked one particular thing that caught. They were talking to the architects, and of course, they there were a lot of the greatest hits played. Like the oh, good architecture doesn't cost any more than bad architecture. That kind of yay rah rah mm-hmm. architecture industry talk. But then they asked Andy asked him what um, what trend from the last couple of decades would you like to see go away, or do you think needs to go away? And Tom Doak said with. Now, for your listeners that may not know, he is the architect that is probably most identified, maybe other than, than Core Crenshaw, with width and ankles mm-hmm. on his golf course. Um, 
and he said he had talked to enough guys, especially in the, the municipal, the public golf space, that width is great if you've got the property and you've got the budget. But, you know, when they're out here with 25-year-old equipment trying to mow municipal fairways, width gets to be really expensive. And so he said he thought he chewed on that and kind of came around that, um, you know, maybe in the, the age of Mammoth Dunes and Sand Valley, that width isn't for everybody. That's not going to be the solution to make old, boring golf courses interesting because it's going to actually make it more expensive. They, and from there, the panel really kind of ran with the idea of how can you keep golf courses interesting without making them more expensive to maintain. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of stepping away from let's make it the most, you know, what municipal golf needs is more interesting, more architecturally diverse and interesting courses versus maybe looking at it from the aspect of you know they're not building a lot more public golf courses so when you're going in and renovating how can you make how can you help pace of play how can you help budgets and how can you help you know keep it interesting for the golfer the Uh, real issue as golf nerds we think about the internal golf stuff and width and angles and interesting and humps and bumps and hollows and you can bounce it off there that's got nothing to do with actually having the thing run each day with people going through it does it and they're the things that you need to sell government on Right. So for the architectural panel to kind of step out of mm. the high-minded artsy part or to kind of step out of the high-minded artsy part planable across the country, um, that was interesting to hear, and that was worthwhile. Did Tom or any of the other uh, architects on the panel have some thought? I mean, it's partly architecture. It's partly about a course setup you know, sort of mm. thing and, and how you set the course. Do they have any thoughts about if not with, then what what might golf look like? With width not predominant, I mean, we've probably we may have gone over the top with the notion of width in many ways uh, because it becomes a trend, and then of course it gets overused, and then then you get mammoth dunes with the ridiculously wide sort of fairways. Was he speaking against width as a concept, or just there must be a sensible boundary in there somewhere? And what sorts of ideas do they have if not for wider courses? Because of course, at a public facility or a, a a community-owned golf or a council-owned golf course, the last thing you want is people spending hours and hours and hours trudging around in long grass next yeah. to narrow fairways looking for golf balls. That will choke the golf course up in a hurry. That, that's where, and Dave might speak to this in a moment, but I'm sure irrigation plays mm. a role in that. If you're going to have irrigation installed in a public golf course, surely you don't just have one row of irrigation, and then that sort of determines the width. Right, it sets Because the, as far as that water's getting thrown, that's where you're going to grow that's where your short grass. Grow, yeah. And then let it get wispy and sort of dry. The metro that thing, straw that sort of rough that you can get offline, and that's more playable. And you find your balls in that. Were any of the architects as smart as us? Don't, yeah, we Logan, solved it. Logan I mean, I, no need to even answer, Dave. We can just. Move. They didn't solve it as quickly as you guys. What they <laughs> what they did talk about a lot: um, the use of kind of internal contours and taking out bunkers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the kind of looping back to the the National Links Trust guys, one of the things they found, you know, with these 100-year-old golf courses in Washington, D.C., is that none of the bunkers were where they're supposed to be for the modern game. Mm-hmm. You know, the bunkers are in places that, as you've talked about with your guests, they penalize the poor player and have absolutely no effect on the top players if, you know, the top players are playing these courses. Um, so the, the architecture panel, they all seemed in agreement that you can do – more interesting things by not using bunkers. Bunkers are sexy, and they they catch the eye, and they they can be talked about. But uh, Doak used his example of um, 
the park down in Houston, the course that he did mm-hmm. for oh, they just played the, the tournament PGA, two weeks ago, yeah. Right, and they've they've removed a ton of bunkers there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they talked about tree management. It's become one. I think I can't remember if it was Jay or Bo Welling that said the thing he wanted to see kind of calm down is tree removal. Just um, yes, overtraining of ple- overplanting of trees can ruin a golf course, especially non-native species, but indiscriminate over chopping down of trees can have there's some negative consequences there too um with your water management um you know flows of traffic and those sorts of things so it it was interesting to hear you know i've never met a tree that i i love trees okay i have a tree business but on the golf course man it's great to go and play a Lynx course that is just all windswept. But they said, you know, that's not really the answer for a lot of these soils and a lot of these climates as well. Bunkers is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's a very lazy way to make golf courses interesting in many ways. And one of the most interesting holes in the world is the 18th at St. Andrews, which doesn't have a bunker anywhere on it. Mm-hmm. Nor does the first, oh, there might be one behind the green at the first. But it's become, it's kind of, there's a very small bucket of tools that architects have and bunkers are one of the main ones and you see some incredibly spectacular bunkers they photograph beautifully and so we've created an expectation among golfers that good golf courses quote unquote have bunkers and amazing the bunkering at royal melbourne the golf course wouldn't be anything like what it is without it it it, it really does make the golf course so it's a bit of a tricky one isn't it but it, it it's the it's the lazy way to make things interesting isn't it i've never met you know, I follow a lot of the grass guys on Twitter, and I always try to meet the superintendents of any place I travel and play. And I've never met one that wished he had more bunkers no. to maintain. Yeah, um, it's just so it can be so labor intensive and such a, a capital investment to maintain those that a lot of these municipal, you know, authorities looking at the the budget sheet. Well, if you've got to cut something, it's going to be the, the unskilled labor guy. Yeah, potentially. Uh, that's going around and raking the bunkers for you. And in a lot of cases, like not in all, obviously, but in a lot of cases, short grass where bunkers are would be a much more interesting golf element, wouldn't they? Well, we were talking about this the other day, weren't we? The third at Royal Melbourne West, um, where you know you've got the severely sloping green from front to back, and no bunkers on the. It's a dogleg left. There's no bunker on the inside of the dogleg, but there's wispy rough mm-hmm. on the inside of the dogleg. And it's great use of wispy rough as a hazard, yeah. Because you d- you don't want to be there. Exactly it is a, it's like a half shot penalty. It was a full shot penalty. And the better the player yeah. you are, the more impact that yeah, has on you. That's right. You and I will walk in there and chunk it or thin it anyway. But a exactly. good player now can't control the spin. But it works beautifully. You can't control the spin exactly, and that's the point. Mm. With the the green sloping from front to back, and there is a left hand bunker that you've got to come over if you're taking that line along the short side of the uh, the dog leg. Uh, just a brilliant hole and. Uh, even in, so, it goes to show even in the sand belt where you could yep. just dig and you could have a fantastic yeah. bunker on exactly the inside of the dog leg. There. Spade, isn't it? Yeah. And and there's an argument to be made that you know, uh, in fact, it has been made that Peninsula Kingswood, fantastic new facility with 36 magnificent yeah, holes, too much sand, is a bit over bunkered. Yeah. <laughs> That's, but you know, they've got the budget to maintain that at the moment. With the third at Royal Melbourne West, sorry, Dad, are, you th- are you familiar with the third hole at the Royal Melbourne West? It's the first hole on the President's Cup course from a couple of years ago, short par four, driver. Okay. They made a yes. bit of a mockery of it in the President's well, Cup. Well, they did because but- they hit it so far. Could you make the case that bunker on the left there, would you almost be better off without it? You're, you're asking I'm me. asking you. Uh, oh, potentially. I don't It does introduce that thing where you've got to, if you take that left-hand line off the tee, you've got to 
it, it looks like that's the place to be off the tee, but there's this delayed penalty of now you've got to come over a hazard. You're forced to come over a hazard. Mm. If you weren't forced to come over that hazard, you could run it up there and the the penalty of being in wispy rough would be a little bit lessened. Mm. So because the further right you go, the better angle you've got there. Strangely enough, depending and, where the flag is, because there's a little bunker. Yeah, it's a fascinating yeah, guy. Yeah, it like is all a great, the holes at Royal Melbourne, yeah. you could talk about it for hours. It is an amazing little hole. There is, yeah. All of which is of no interest to a public golf course in many ways, is it, Dave? I mean, those things need to be kind of built in, but you can't sell government on the notion of fascinating architecture that people will sit around and talk about for hours. It's not a marketable commodity, is it? It's not if – well, I guess it depends on what kind of course you want to run. You know, a, a high-end – I think a lot of high-end municipal courses have maybe have aspirations of being a destination, mm-hmm. maybe not uh, of the the same way as a household name like a a Pebble Beach or where I am maybe a, a harbor town or something like that. But they they have dreams of drawing people in. I have this in my own town, um, my home course, Kearney Hill Golf Links, Pete and PB Dye Course. Okay, public, owned by the city, built to host the old Bank One classic on the senior tour it is it's a what i call a four season golf course it is of enough character and caliber that it draws people uh, when it's cold to our north ohio michigan you know you go out and see the parking lot and you see a lot of non-kentucky license plates because it's a draw for people to come down play a quick warm round of golf so they charge a little bit higher price but there's an expectation there too Mm. Um, you know, it has the Pete and PB die name, so you know it's strategic, and there's a handful of you know, you're going to get a handful of die signature things. But is that the typical municipal experience? Are you going to sell kind of investment to the other four courses? No, built, not really. Built to host a senior tour event. <laughs> That's a hell of an investment, isn't <laughs> it? There's, there's a business plan <laughs> you'd like to have a look at. Stop me in my tracks there. A whole golf course built to host a senior tour built event. Built by the o- city. Obviously, you know. Built by the city goes to host a senior tour On and has a life beyond <laughs> yes, that. But, exactly. but still, to that, steal that it, really struck to me. S- to steal it away from the course across town operated by the Marriott that was hosting the tournament. <laughs> Magnificent. Oh, wow. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in there, isn't there? But yeah. we won't uh, go down there. Of course, <laughs> you're right. that, that and, and we saw Chambers Bay was a not dissimilar notion where somebody had sold the local government on the idea that yes. you can create this destination and it's good for the place. In fact, what what governments, local government in particular, should be focusing on, Marrickville, in fact, should be selling that facility to the local community, shouldn't they, rather than trying to attract people in from outside. There's your starting point. That's that's the wrong foot to start on, is it not, to try and build a destination course. That's right. And, look, if only they had some ideas in this <laughs> National Links Trust Symposium about engaging the community and the impact of golf on the community. It was a double segue. They, they, I teed it up and Logue's hit it down there for you, Dave. <laughs> a lot of Martin Bailey with you guys. Um, yeah, the... They did have a community impact panel, and they had this was um, a panel composed of people that most people in golf wouldn't have heard of. A, kind of a not as splashy as the architect panel, mm-hmm. but these were some really thoughtful people. You had a couple of youth on course members. You had somebody from the East Lake Foundation down in Atlanta. Um, you had somebody from the Latina Golfers Association. Oh, nice. And this was. Um, what I took away from that panel, they kind of echoed an earlier panel from that morning about um, 
the way you have a commu- an impact in the community is kind of goes hand in hand in their mind with grow the game. And these people were not interested in having a catchier, glitzier campaign to have a higher capture rate of the same white middle-class upper-class demographic they didn't want just more more us. white guys like me <laughs> That's right, yes us. yes the three they weren't going after the three of us right. to grow the game they wanted to talk about avenues to get golf into schools you know in, in the united states golf is not one of the recreation programs that is part of kind of public education now, high schools have golf teams but in in pe and phys ed class nobody teaches golf mm-hmm it's too hard. It's too expensive. If from the school board's point of view, yeah. you know all the reasons that golf is tough to grow. Um, they wanted to talk a lot of um, many ways in what you would hear Andy Staples talk about in making golf courses community assets. How do you make them in practical terms, in yeah. real terms? How do you open the doors and and get people to the course? And one of the the I think it was the young lady from the Latina Golfer Association, and I'd never heard of this, and I was embarrassed. That I'd never thought of it. She said, why not once a week, once a month, just offer a tour of your golf course? Mm-hmm. Crazy. Just for people that don't play golf, Coming that don't walk. know, just come, here, come ride with me. A couple of you this will take a, a couple of carts out of circulation. Yeah. Here's the clubhouse. Here's the pro shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Let's go ride the course. Okay. We do the cart path. We try to keep it on the path. You know, this is a fairway where you're going to be hitting the goal. You know, here's the green up here. That's your ultimate goal. Yeah. And just take an hour to show non-golfers around a golf course. I've never heard of that. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. You think about every, almost every other recreation you can do, how well signposted they are yes. for people who have no idea what they're stepping into. Like you go to a bowling alley or something, it's incredibly obvious the counter that you have to go to and the steps you have to go through to get out and get a lane and get the stupid you, shoes and things like are that. Are you deliberately taunting me because you know I can't get the shoes to fit me, so I can't bowl? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Is that what you're doing there? Uh, but, uh, no, no, it wasn't. I'll tell you about ice skating later on too when I was a kid. <laughs> um, but yeah, golf, look, at, it just, it's so intimidating and it's because- And nobody tells you, you're right, no one tells you anything. There's no there's no arrows, there's no signs. Well, worse, you walk into the pro shop and the bloke just says that'll be 15 bucks. He never says to you, have you played golf before? Do you know no. anything about the You could hire golf clubs from the – and he's not going to say, do you have you played before? He's going to go, that's $22. And ironically, you, you're going to be facing an uh, audience and other participants out there who are much more highly critical of your Host- etiquette and behaviour than in fact. what you'll find at a bowling alley. Yeah, that's <laughs> like right. You can, you can do your own thing at a bowling alley, but um, a golf course, you actually need to be clued into what you – It's interesting. When you were talking about that, Dave, so one of the things that happened down here during the pandemic down in Melbourne, and this is bubbling away and we're going to try and get somebody from the Northcote course onto the podcast in the next week or two – the local residents during lockdown, you know, parks full, golf course was closed, cut some holes in the fences, and they sort of, you know, took over the golf course for want of a better term. And they loved it. That was fantastic. All these people who'd never been there before didn't know what was behind the fence, and they were amazed at this wonderland that they found. Now that course is having to sort of fight for its survival with the local council, because the local community said, we like this, we want to stick with it. I think there are issues with that, and we'll see what unfolds. Much of that could probably be avoided. This really does go to that golf courses behind fences stay out mentality that golf has doesn't it you could break a lot of that 
In fact, the reason you don't have it in a place like St Andrews and lots of parts of Scotland is because the golf course is just a part. There are almost nobody in those towns who hasn't walked across the golf course at some point, whether they play or even like the game or not. So there's not this antipathy towards it. This Golf's excluded itself in so many ways and then, of course, made itself a pariah by doing the same. That, what you're talking about there solves that, I imagine, almost immediately by such a simple act of Come and, have a, come and have a walk around the golf course. Every mm. Thursday at four o'clock, we take a walk around the golf course. And if all you're interested in is a nice walk, you can be part of it just for that. Yeah, so be it. And, you know, so many of the, especially the public golf courses, aren't really behind fences. You know, they're big green space that, yeah, you have to drive around and, and you see people playing golf on them. Um, you know, I'm, I was so impressed being down here in South Carolina Atlantic Dunes. Okay, it's not Harbor Town. It's one of the other courses, but it's still a hundred and fifty dollar uh, greens fee golf course down here. The bike paths. You're you're talking about signage and things that are obvious. You can't go a hundred yards on any bike path down here without signage saying here go here's where you can go and here's where this path goes. The paths go through the golf course. There's not a stay out sign. There's there's a little sign that says carts this direction bike path this direction and it literally goes you know there's it cuts through a corner of the golf course maybe four or five hole minimum ride um people that are passing through they're walking their dogs or riding their bikes they know to be quiet and be respectful Hmm. the golfers know to yell and watch out for those people it's not hostile they don't interfere with play it's just brilliant you know the little signs say golfers only from 7 a.m to 8 p.m you know the golf course is a community asset otherwise and this is a high-end mm. um kind of hoity-toity golf course if you you know judge by green spheres uh, and architectural merit was it was so, it built to host a senior, <laughs> senior tour, tour event, event. Or? <laughs> a corn ferry tour event <laughs> it was not it was well i mean davis love maybe maybe he wants to bring it home he already hosts but how many tournaments but it was just seen that mm. you know that these are so integrated into the community and what could be versus if I go home and ask my pro, like, hey, can I go for a quick jog if I get up at sunrise? And he's like, no, the, the city lawyer said, nope, no non-golf purposes. You can't walk. The, the, insur- the insurers won't let us. You know, just no, no opportunity to bring anybody that isn't already a golfer onto the golf course yeah. to just bring people in. Sort of a golf without golf a permit. I love that idea of the the just have a course walk once a week or once a month or whatever it might be. Were there any other interesting sort of ideas about ways to engage the community or more importantly, share the space safely? Was there much talk in that way? Because even at the walk the course, as you put it, there was a bit of the goal of this is to get you interested in golf and ultimately make you a golfer. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but that can't be the only thing we do as golf. We need to welcome people into the space for things other than golf too, do we not? There was, and again, it, I heard a lot of things that were kind of parallel and similar to what I've heard from Andy Staples on various podcasts, his community golf Which initiative. A, if anybody hasn't said it, it's a fabulous concept, isn't it? It really is one. Right. It is a make the golf course. It's what Pinehurst is. It's the cradle and the putting, the Himalayas, the Thistledew putting course. It's come, hang out, eat here, have a drink, watch people play golf, watch them finish their round. Putt if you want. If you're not a golfer, go putt first. If you're an aspiring golfer, go play our short course first. That A lot of that, there was a lot of 12-hole loop talk, six-hole loop, you know, non-traditional golf courses. There was a lot of talk about that in these panels. 
um, which was interesting. The only thing that I kind of kept my, my skepticism radar up is that a lot of this talk again was, or the examples were in big cities, mm-hmm. in some of our largest cities. You know, you have two of the most prominent public-private partnerships, which everyone, pretty much everyone almost concedes the fact that the way forward for public golf is is through public-private partnership. So I was a little dispirited with that. There wasn't wasn't as much talk of kind of organically, you know, the the council in a relatively small town or or even a small city, um, how they, you know, their way forward. It was Bobby Jones in Atlanta, which is a massive Huge, huge. How much they spent on that? It was ridiculous, it, wasn't it? They spent on that golf course. It was in. It was north of ten million dollars, yeah, wow. maybe twenty. Um, our, our friend of the podcast, Derek Duncan, was. You know, he lives down there, so he's he's got all kinds of opinions on. I've, I've played the, that of course. Have you? Yeah. How that's not scalable. I've played the old one. I haven't played the new one. I've, I've played the new one. Yeah, I would only got to go around it in one direction, but it, it was, was really one of those interesting. Ideas, isn't yeah. It? yeah. yeah. Mm. Not sure Derek was, but there was talk there, (laughs) (laughs) right? Well, I I think they lost him at paths, and I'm surprised you went around it, Log, because the whole thing's built with paths. Well, I walked, but yeah, there was there was. I'm not a monster, (laughs) but yeah, yeah, it was paths everywhere. But the the shining examples of kind of what has worked in public golf of recent, all the case studies are almost exclusively some kind of public-private partnership. Winter Park, um, maybe, some of those kinds of things. Yeah, Winter, yeah, Winter Park 9. There's the community golf out in, um, I forget the name, out in Colorado, Colorado, Colorado Golf Association. Uh, d- yeah, that they one. own a golf course. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's great if you've got, if you can go and get corporate benefactors mm. or someone or just some benevolent wealthy, you know, someone of wealth to help sponsor um, going forward these kinds of initiatives. But I didn't hear a lot of real concrete step-by-step guides for town councils. You know, one of the things the architects bemoaned is that if you grew up, every rural town in America or each county had one nine-hole golf course, at least. You know, it was just, it was a field that was mowed and they mowed circle greens on it. And that's where everybody learned to play golf. That's what's dying. Mm. There's no, there's no model right now to save that. that. That's a great example because that's just an organic thing. Like that, that's one of those things where golf finds a way. And it, it's strange that we now have to, uh, we, we now have to manufacture what used to be organic. Mm. And the, it's not my thing, but I watch this anyway, and we'll put a link in the show notes, I guess. <laughs> we'll <win>. uh, <laughs> the scratch TV thing. Uh, where Eric Anders Lang visited London Golf Club, uh, or it's called the London Scottish Golf Club now. I think it, it, what intrigued me about it and the reason I watched it is because it's a course that I read about in the Bernard Darwin book, the uh, the the golf courses of the British Isles. Uh, there's got a fantastic chapter on London Golf Club. And I found it intriguing because even from that those very early days when Darwin was writing about it, it was a common and so people are walking through doing all sorts of activities there and the golfers all have to wear red coats back in the day. They wore these red coats so that people could see them coming and they say, oh, there's golfers, you know. So it was just this organic thing that grew out of this convention and the golfers that play there today, it's still a common. There's people walking their dogs all over the place and uh, there's golfers still wearing, they're required to wear a red shirt 
it's for insurance purposes now. <laughs> but uh, really, but they're still all the golfers on the golf course are required to wear a red shirt, and uh, they go around and they get along. And, and there's some animosity there. It's clear that some of the dog walkers resent the golfers, and some of the golfers resent the dog walkers. They're humans, aren't we? But it seemed it <laughs> was low level. It looked to me like low level animosity. Um, nothing that people were going to rise up and take action about. The thing had found it, it's found a balance about its place. Yeah, and and it's just all organic, and it's intriguing that now we have to manufacture that natural uh, state that, of being. Doesn't that partly come back to? And this is where there might be the role for the USGA, the RNA, Golf Australia here in Australia. The small places like what you're talking about, Dave, who can't afford don't know that they don't have the expertise to do the golf properly and if they did do it properly it would be a benefit to everybody financially and in many other ways but the public private partnership might not be the right way forward because the private's not interested in the tiny little course in the tiny little town that expertise about golf and the golf business surely these administrative bodies have bucket loads of it to share how do we how do we go from that to I've always thought there should be somebody who's paid by Golf Australia to simply drive around the nation, pull into small towns with a golf course, go to the council and say, hey, do you know what you've got there? How do you run it? We do golf. Is there anything we can help you with? Some advice, this, that. What are the problems you have? They should be just offering that service as part of what they do. Um, once again, we're all golfers, and I imagine, were there any non-golfers at the symposium? It all seemed to be people with that work in golf. Hmm. You know that that was part of the the skeptical beginning. It's like okay, these the the self congratulatory nature, but um, you know the they did have the, the keynote address was Seth Wall. You know the the PGA of America, which was he's timeless. Seth Chatty. does he still look exactly the same age as he did thirty years ago? He's he's aging incredibly well, Seth. Uh, Mark Kalkovicia. Mark Kalkovicia looks the same age. <laughs> but, yeah, except that he looked he was, 80 when he was 30, yeah. and he still looks but 80 he's, now. Yeah. He's approaching 80. Yes, hasn't, hasn't aged an iota. <laughs> yeah, right. Gene Hackman, too, yeah. for that matter. Yeah. To your point, Rod, where I've thought a lot of that, you know, those are places where you're going to see some kind of the rural and the smaller cities. You're going to have to see some kind of organic creativity, and that's, you know, to get people in, to make them community assets. Is that going to be where the dance is, you know? The, the senior prom is going to be, they're going to hold wedding, you know, all of the non-golf stuff. But where I think kind of big golf can help there, um, the green section. You know, can they go down and there may not be a superintendent at a lot of these mm. courses. There may literally just be a guy that mows grass. Yeah. So how can they help him, Mow it better. you know, just make it 5 or 10% better? Like here, you know, give him an assessment. Like you're just wasting time fighting the same problem or – you know, if you put in X amount of drainage or, or whatever, just kind of small solutions to to small problems that aren't just so pie in the sky that it would never get funded. You know, people like that. PJ of America, you know, if it's just a guy that um, is a seagrass, mowgrass operation, um, maybe some ideas to get kids or get communities interested. Again, how can you take it to schools to make yeah. it part of the, the holy – Baseball, basketball, football, soccer, you know, kind of the, the four horsemen of American sports for kids right now. Get the kids How do you add in mowing, maybe? Like, <laughs> in, in, child <laughs> labor, maintaining in between sweeping chimneys and right. stuff like that. Picking up there. stones off the fairways yeah. to improve the place. 
<laughs> onerous child labor laws are holding us back for sure. Well, they can't caddy any. Mowing's the problem. Look, you know, it's just a, it's a workforce there. Well, maybe there is, as you say, you, you mentioned the PGA there and the USGA, the Golf Course Superintendents Associations in every country could certainly be of some assistance, I'm sure, to most golf courses. I can't remember who it was that said it on Feed the Ball, but I've never st- never forgotten it. 80% of golf's problems could be fixed with mowing lines and tree management. Probably Ian Andrew, I'm thinking. I don't think it was. I think it was, okay. might have been Brian Schneider. I'm not sure. Anyway, but that, that, and it's true. It, 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 the big picture stuff is not necessary for your nine-hole municipal course at the beginning. Let's get the simple stuff right, exactly as you say, and make a facility that right. – and then welcome in the community. You're right about the weddings and all those sorts of things. It's often – this is part of golf's image problem, I think. Most people who live near a golf club, most of the clubs here in Australia are semi-private where you've got public tea times available, but there's a membership base as well and the course is closed off for them at certain times. Most people who live around those areas – not only do they not know they could most of them go into the golf club and have a drink if they wanted to, mm-hmm. they actually think they can't. Mm-hmm. They actually think, well, you can't unless you're a member. You can't go near the place. And right at that very simple aspect. So my old club at Mangrove Mountain, uh, which is a sort of a semi-rural area about an hour and a half out of Sydney itself, the golf clubhouse there was the public bar. Yeah. It was the local pub because there wasn't another place to buy booze anywhere else. And they had a bottle shop as well. So there was there was two sides to that. <laughs> well, take, there was golf and then there was the front bar, but it was the low. And so nobody in that area thought anything about going to the golf club for anything. And taking that further, a lot of those courses you mentioned where the people don't know that they could even go in and have a meal or have a drink, mm-hmm. a lot of the members at that club probably also don't think <laughs> that public are allowed in. Yeah. And if they see them, they go, <laughs> go, to the they ask, yeah, they right. go and they're going to say, are you a member? You're a member. How did you get in? And, and it's incredibly unwelcoming. But that's what happens at a lot of I think it was the GM semi-private clubs. At Arundel Hills on the Gold Coast told me the first thing he did when he got there was organise a letterbox drop. They picked out a two kilometre radius and they just did a drop into the letterbox. Did you know you're welcome to come into Arundel Hills and have a meal? The restaurant's open. And they just generated huge amounts of interest. People would always wondered what it looked like inside, but assumed they were never allowed to go in. <laughs> yeah, really simple stuff um, like that. And I wonder Can whether I we guys get, are- do we get those ideas from golfers though, Dave, or do we need some non-golfers to look at? I'm skeptical about that as well. I think that's got its limitations. You have to have an understanding of golf and how it works to have valid ideas. But I wonder whether we look outside of golf enough. Probably not. It, we're a pretty insular community hmm. in golf. You know, we want we want to be the best in golf. I think is the are the blinders that we get stuck in. It's not that we want to be the best in the community. It's like we want to be. We're competing against the other golf clubs. We want to be the best golf club or best golf course. Not we want to be the best place for people to meet, the best restaurant, the best gathering point. That's just not part of the conversation. It's a shame because it's fabulous entertainment. My mum and her friends used to love mm-hmm. going to Asquith Golf Club mm-hmm. to have lunch because they'd sit up there and watch the guys coming up the 12th hole, the par three, and you'd see the tantrums and the occasional good shot, but blokes throwing clubs, <laughs> missing short parts. Don't have to, you don't have to play or understand golf to see how incredibly entertaining that is, grown mm-hmm. men behaving like four-year-old children. My in-laws used to have a timeshare in on Maui. Tough, tough thing for them to do. And they would never go to the islands without going and having lunch at Kapalua, at the Plantation Clubhouse, because it's the best view in golf. Mm. And they would see you could see people going off the first, coming up the ninth, coming down the 18th, and they, they don't play golf. They just went and enjoyed the, the view, and it was fabulous. It was the best two hours of the trip each year. One of the best places to stand and just 
B in golf, full stop, is just next to the 18th at the old course in St Andrews. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and it's always full. There's people always lined up on that fence and feeling free to commentate on everything that's happening on the green, as <laughs> exactly. you can hear as you stand over your 30-footer for par that you should never have had. Exactly. That experience is heightened by the fact that you're watching people having one of the most memorable moments of their life, I think. And doing horribly at it. Well, some people and get a birdie and, or yeah, something right, exactly. and they get uh, applause, fairway, spontaneous yeah. applause from strangers <laughs> on the street there. Amazing. We've gotten sidetracked. What were some of the highlights for you, Dave? What was what did you go in being thinking you were particularly interested in and you were surprised by how uninteresting it was and what did you think wasn't going to be particularly which was? I, I accept that the probably the main one was the the girl that said, just invite people onto the golf course to walk around. I'm buying away, but that's a, such a simple and brilliant idea. But what else sort of surprised you about the symposium? That was surprising. The again, the architects kind of diverting away from their standard spiels mm-hmm. that they would, you know, tell memberships and say, "Hey, width may not be the answer." Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, making making a golf course the best it can be may not be the best for the golf course. You know, just kind of wrap yeah. them admitting that, yeah. um, you know, that there's not everything can be wing fit number two, and the six hour round does nobody any good get people through make it easy to maintain that's how you get you know that's how you get a functional golf course that's how it becomes sustainable when you're not having to do a whole bunch of artificial inputs just to keep it some artificial look um and again just the really almost the hymnum hymnal in unison of the public private partnership you know the, the the outdated models are so outdated they're just not part of the conversation. That was striking to me. What wasn't said was striking. Yeah. What What are the outdated models? Because I feel like golf courses, their ownership model is a little bit different in the States than it is here generally. I would agree with there, There's a lot of private ownership of golf courses is my perception. Is that... There are in the municipal, but in the, you know, for public golf, I think most of it, the number, they had the statistic and I wrote it down and I don't have it with me. I want to say it was 75% of them are municipally owned, like only 25% of mm. the golf. The number's the publicly available. Yeah. Surprisingly high, isn't it, the number of public golf courses? In yeah, America. that only about 25 to 30% of the, what we'd call a daily fee, you're not a member, you just go and pay money when you want to play, are privately operated or privately owned. Um you know, there are huge management companies, Troon, Billy Casper. Yeah. These are people that not only do they own golf courses, but they will come in and run your golf course for you, just kind of as an independent operator. Um, but a, a lot of those contracts are what you might find relatively short term. Yes. Mm. They're a trap, years. aren't they? There's yeah. no incentive they, to invest in the greatest asset, which is the golf course. So as it degrades... The profits right. degrade, and so by the time the short-term contracts come to an end, the company doesn't want it's declined the in value. Actually, that's that exactly point. right. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then the next person, if there is going to be a next, has to invest a bunch of money up front before they can. And so you can see why that model just does not work in the long term. And it's it's a tough spot for all because you don't you've got you know city councils and state legislatures that don't you know they don't want to throw good money after bad. No. They don't want to have to justify to some constituent like, hey, why are you paying this golf course? So, you know, somebody else. The operator is in a tough spot. I've got a good friend that runs a course out in Arizona that he, they went short on his last contract renewal. It had been, I think, a 10-year contract every time. They gave him two years. Well, he's not going to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars to replace all the lights on the driving range, which is his cash cow. Yeah. You know, public public facility where you just bang buckets of balls. You carry the money out in the buckets. Oh, that absolutely. You, you yeah. pick the balls in. But if he can't, if he's only going to be there for two years, why is he going to, 
you know, risk walking away from that investment. So uh, to your point, Adrian, yeah, we do have a, we have a very, a varied, uh, ownership model spectrum and maybe that's part of the conversation. Um, the, the nonprofit model is what is gaining steam. That's what I came out of the, the symposium, not only just the public private, but also this nonprofit model, um, which is going to compete with the powers that be. That may ruffle some feathers. I, I don't think Troon or, or Billy Casper or those guys are, are going out of business anytime soon. Um, but that's one of the unique frictions for public golf in this country is that you have private operators trying to make a profit competing against public entities. Maybe they're subsidized. I think trying to be a successful non-profit operator of a course introduces an interesting constraint because my perception is that like a Troon or somebody, they're going to invest in sort of the wrong things to make it profitable. Exactly the wrong things. The, you know, (laughs) Greg Norman card experience or whatever the hell it's called or something. That's that's the sort of thing I would expect to see at... Course. That sort of a golf course. Those where, whereas, stupid surfboard things that you ride around. <laughs> surfboard on. things. Whereas, <laughs> and because they think, oh, that's going to, you know, bring people in and we, you know, we make margin on the carts and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, people can bring uh, booze out on the cart with them. And um, that's, and, and so that's the sort of uh, investment that I think would come from a profit one. But a non profit. Uh, trying to make it sustainable has to think a little bit differently, and it, it just—I think—it places an interesting constraint on them, where they've got to think more about the golf, mm. um, and, and the cart thing probably isn't something to pursue for a non-profit. Certainly not first up. No. Right. Yeah, it, it's lower on the pecking order. Yeah. But you're going to invest in your infrastructure um, so that you know drainage works. The, what what Tom and Bo and Jay said in the architecture panel, they spent a good. 10 minutes of the hour talking about drainage, 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 and drainage are what's really important on a golf course. And that's that's one of the lessons that the green section from the USGA can take around to small towns. The symposium was worthwhile. I, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I was able to do it remotely. Um, you know, I think they originally envisioned it as a bit of a fundraiser because there was a, a meet and greet with the architects and they played, they played East Potomac as a group afterwards. But I think it turned into a much... Um, they are supposed to be putting it on their website. So if, if anybody's interested. Um, Mike will put that in the show notes. He'll put the link yeah. there in the show notes so people can go and have a look. Right what <laughs> would have really tied it all together, though, is if they had a you know some sort of a golf celebrity, like, I don't know, like an Eric Anders Lang or somebody there to host a couple of those in-person events. Like that would have that would have put it over the top, surely. Like You're. You're you're barking up the wrong tree to, to get any celebrity worship or for that to really move the needle for me. You know that they brought Andy Johnson in to do the architecture panel. I thought that was cool. You know he threw them a couple of off script curveballs as he kind of mused and waxed poetically about public golf and golf architecture. Uh, they did bring in Eric Anders Lang was kind of the oh, omnibus okay. right. MC um, of the event with his normal witty and kind of sarcastic bits. Did he? Um, did he? Char- you know, did he, didn't you charge for personal like contact at all? Or was there? <laughs> didn't you <laughs> meet Eric and Patty's dog at Winter Park? Uh, I thought you were bum yeah, buddies yeah. with him. No, excuse me, no, buddy. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? <laughs> thought you guys were tied. No, we very briefly met. It didn't cost me anything. Okay, there you go. I wonder if he remembers you. You're, I doubt it. One of the lucky ones. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Well, I'm glad that it was worthwhile. Now, is it supposed to be an annual thing, or is this a one-off? 
do we know? This National Links Trust is I an interesting idea. It seems to be driving some interesting combined with Andy Staples, which I think is fantastic. What you do on the Blind Shots podcast, and who hasn't listened, Dave does a lot of stuff on public golf and talks to people who work at the grassroots and at the coalface of golf about their thoughts, PGA pros and others who are in the business. It feels a bit like architecture did 10 years ago on the internet. It was this little corner where a few people found each other. Gain traction and momentum to now it's something a bit more significant. Then I wonder whether I feel like public golf might be getting into that kind of state. Wheels are starting to turn, aren't they? They are. Um, you know, my my friend, our young architect Brian Ross. He's the one that he's one of the co-designers of Park Mammoth, the course I wrote about last year. And he's confirmed for me that municipalities, whether they be federal, state, or local, are always a lagging indicator. They're always the tail, never the nose. And he said, we're, he, you know, from a business side and the architecture side, is starting to see some RFPs kind of creep out. And um, that's another interesting thing from the architects. Uh, all three of them said they'd never do an RFP again. They RFP. had no interest. What's RFP? Uh, re- request for proposal. Oh, right. That's when a government sends out, says, hey, we would like we the competitive bidding process right, right, right. for any work. Because um, you knew you were just asking for the... For the, for the laypers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes. They they never wanted the red tape hassle of having to work for a council, a uh, committee, a state government ever again. Um, so that Which kind of might be a good may, thing. Maybe we don't need to do those big capital works that require that RFP kind of model. You, know, you want to do stuff from the internally where you don't need all of that, where you can just get on with stuff maybe. Ironically, it was interesting – I thought that was an interesting juxtapose from Tom Doak, considering he's doing the work at East Potomac yeah. for free. That's a <laughs> yeah. that's a job another young architect could have maybe gotten paid for a little bit, but he he magnanimously decided to donate his services. He's an interesting. That, that's that's a he? that's a tricky area, isn't it? Of course, it is. Tom Doak. It really doing, is doing work for free. He he did that at the um, Maxwell course as well, right? Um, I can't remember which one it is. The Maxwell's original course, that the, the very first one he built. And uh, uh, yeah, that's that's all the information I have on that story. But it it, it does take work away from you know young architects. And was well, the argument about public golf courses? They compete with private clubs, and so they, yeah. so I thought I think we got an answer. Do we know if this is going to be an annual thing or whether it was just a one off? Be fantastic if it was. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think it's going to be an annual, but I will be following up uh, for sure if it is. I certainly like the sound of it, Logan. It, 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 the danger is these things are a talk fest, with it, yep. but it sounds like that's exactly what it wasn't, and that's extremely encouraging. Well, it, 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 it can be that sort of love fest where everything sounds great, but it's actions and follow-up afterwards right. that that is the really telling thing, and uh, it, there's never any measurement of that stuff. Like, Although, sorry. Well, I don't know. That, that idea, if nothing else, that idea of... Uh, inviting people just to look at the golf course and introduce them to the golf That's course. That's been worth the whole thing. It, what would be really great is for them to follow up and, you know, report on courses that have actually implemented that and uh, just post about it on social media or something as, you know, as effective as that might be or ineffective as that might be. At least it's some sort of follow-up and measurement of people taking action yeah. from the talk fest. Otherwise, I think these things can take... Uh, years of repetition before the first action the message happens, starts yeah. to get out there, and and it, you know, a lot of these events, they, I, I think, to some extent, accept them for what they are, an enjoyable thing where you know it's an industry uh, event where you're meeting other people that 
you've known obliquely or you're seeing people that you haven't seen in a long time and having fun with some events and things, uh, except that's great. That like accept it for that. Um, if you're really, really serious about any sort of pretension about getting a result out of it, then follow it up yeah. after the after the event. Yeah, so I was just thinking about that walking around the course, inviting people. Like, Royal Melbourne do a version of that, don't they? They that, do, yeah. That botanical thing. With I don't know if it's once plants. a month or something, but yeah, there's a, a walk to show the native heath that yeah. they've uncovered there well, and they keep propagating new things all the time. It's great. And to Adrian's point, you know, maybe that's the role here with Seth Wall being the PGA of America chairman being part of this. Maybe that's something they can push down the pipeline to the club pro, to the PGA professionals, you know, say, hey, um, it's the face of golf. You know, if, yeah, you know, make this part of your, make this part of your routine. Um, you know, bring the community in. Just it doesn't cost you anything. We, we've got it's an hour. Yeah, you know, people like a Sandy Jamison here in Australia with his one club golf, but he's he introduces people to golf in I think the be- I've never heard a better way than this, where he he a PGA member who knows how to hit a golf ball demonstrates for them hitting a ball twenty meters. Yeah. He says. If you can do this, like he just does a little swing, he knows that they can't do what he can do, but he knows that they can hit the ball 20 metres if they make solid contact. And he demonstrates that for them, and then he times them for a few holes, and that's kind of all they need to know. Move the ball forward and keep, you know, what keep he, moving at a good pace. Interestingly, and, what he creates is not people who play golf. He creates golfers, people who then fall in. Right. And, and You're a no, golfer. If, well, that's what he called And it. not all of them. You're a golfer if you can move that's the ball right. 20 metres and you can play a hole in what is it, eight minutes or something, he says, you're a golfer. Yep. And it's not every single person. Most of them will come back a few times, but, but a percentage of those people become absolutely committed golfers who go off and join expensive golf clubs down the road a year later with a bag full of clubs and become part of the problem instead of part of the solution, which is all fantastic. Something important, I think, Dave, just to finish up on is one of the things I like about the National Links Trust and having everyone knows this symposium, et cetera, et cetera, what they're creating is an example and we need examples I've been pointing to Winter Park in conversations for years and saying, look, it's possible. Here is an example. It doesn't mean that that template is just a straight, you know, import, export. You drop that on your course and it'll work. But it can work and we need those examples. And that part of that action that Logue's talking about there, that's part of that action. Here's the follow-up. We've done this at East Potomac and these other courses in D.C. and look what's happened. Yes, and, and that was... That's who, again, made up some of the other panels, people from the courses in Atlanta, from the East Lake Project. You know, that was a huge community project. There's a charter school down there, that, you know, the, from Bobby Jones, um, from a lot of the Youth on Course initiatives, people from, uh, from different first tees. You know, that was something I haven't mentioned. Some of the, these panelists were first tee of Richmond. It wasn't just kind of uh, the, the same people that you see on a Golf Channel panel. Uh, but these first tee people with the real experiences of getting people that don't have exposure to golf to come to the golf course or to you know learn something about the game and see if it's for them because they they everybody went in with kind of the admission that yes golf is still a niche sport it always is going to be it's never going to be NFL football NBA basketball FIFA soccer. It's not going to have that popularity. There, was, there wasn't anybody at this symposium trying to say golf can be that. There was a realism about the, the panels that was refreshing. Um, so all of these ideas were kind of targeted towards golf, maybe golf's blind spots. And that's was what was so encouraging about it. 
It the stuff that we've ignored for so long, the stuff that's not so easy to yes. talk about. Um, or that the powers that be have ignored for so long. Yeah, because they're, they're uh, hard to sell. Dave's been fantastic. Have you long? Where can people find you? You do a blog, you do a podcast, you sell real estate in Kentucky. If we've got any Kentucky some, listeners and they want to buy tree, something, yeah. some sort of tree some business, sort of tree business you were mentioning that. on the side there. What's yeah. going on here? The, the trees, that's that's with the, the father in law. Um, he is in his 70s. He has, I don't know. 25 acres and he didn't need to be on a tractor for more than eight hours a week uh, so i convinced him you know what you don't have to take care of trees you just plant them they grow or they don't that's it so i'm growing hardwoods oaks and maple or oaks and walnuts with them it's great i walk with the dog every week it's her favorite place in the world wow so when i curse when i curse the trees on the golf course i think <laughs> You know what? Of, I'm in problem. balance. I've reached equilibrium. <laughs> right here. If I come so, out here with a chainsaw, you're offsetting like boom. Rory. Sure, right. you fly yeah, private, that's right. but you're buying off some credits. It's all okay. Tree credits. Everything's fine. Yep. Tree Good. credits. You, you can find me at onebeardedgolfer.com. That's the blog. You can also find the Blind Shots podcast there. That's the origin of that. Uh, happily, a member of the Talking Golf network of shows we'll probably put links to all of those things in the show notes probably could but you'll need to remember what they are as i as i do every week i'll come to you in two days and go, what were the links that we had to put in the show notes because i've uh, i will have forgotten them uh, if you haven't checked out dave's blog and podcast make sure you do i think the thing that the first time i encountered you dave you'd written like a 1500 word piece about scorecards if i remember correctly and i thought yes, this I- this is my people this is my kind of guy <laughs> It was not only writing 1,500 words, it was a rant um, because the the scorecards of the public courses, my home course, uh, we have, what do we have now? We have five different T's and it's a scorecard that is the size of a yardage book. Uh, and whereas I, I walk, I'm a dedicated walking golfer, unapologetic about it. I want a scorecard to fit nicely in my back pocket or in my scorecard holder, my very nice leather scorecard holder. Um, and if a, a scorecard is closer to an eight by 11 sheet of paper than it is to a packet of gum, it's not going to fit in there. So, uh, I went back and forth with the pro there. I ended up having, I kind of went to him after I shot first and asked questions later. And he explained to me why they have gigantic scorecards. And so I did, I think I did a, a later post that was a little bit of a mea culpa. Um, but no, give me. Give me small, give me what I want, and if I don't get what I want, I'm going to say something about it. I'm mm. just in that this stage of my life. This is the sort of content I'm Ex- here for. I'm going to put a link to this that is, one in the. Sh- I do remember that article. This is the content of, you don't get on yeah. other golf podcasts for a very good reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we have satisfied the entire audience for this Scorecards. sort of content because we're sitting right here. But uh, <laughs> I can see the other two right here. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Who needs to know how to fix their slice and stop three-putting? That's all the boring stuff. Scorecards is where it's at and the size of them. So wonderful stuff. Dave, been great of you to join us. Uh, we will certainly get you back from time to time. We don't have you on enough. I think this is your second appearance, I think, on Good Good, is it not, if I'm not mistaken? It is. So fantastic. But go and check out Dave. Uh, good to have you aboard. Logo, it's good to have your company. Thanks for coming in. Thanks very much, Rod. That's it for Good Good episode 90... Anybody remember? Anybody? Anybody? 95 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Episode 96 will be coming your way next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.